This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Brian Washington, author of the novel Memorial. I didn't want to write a text that capitalized solely on the marginalization of marginalized characters or characters from marginalized communities. We'll be back with Brian Washington in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort, and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back again. The time for art is now. And I'm here to tell you that I emphatically believe this. And if you value this program, please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount, but for just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps the show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's such an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear So whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear alive and on the airwaves. It's important for me to produce interviews like these with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful to our societal conversations about what it means to be alive today. This effort takes money, time, equipment, more organization than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you're about to listen to is free but it's not without expense to make. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will continue these conversations. Stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Brian Washington, author of the short story collection, Lot, and the novel, Memorial. Washington was awarded a National Book Award, 5 Under 35 honor, and won the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award, among other awards. Lot was one of President Barack Obama's favorite books of 2019. The novel Memorial tells the story of Benson, who is black, and Mike, a Japanese-American, who live together in Houston and have been in relationship for four years. They are at a turning point in their connection and facing what is next for them when the story opens. But their opportunity to figure it out 
is interrupted by the arrival of Mike's mother, Mitsuko, from Japan, just as Mike is flying back to Japan to care for his estranged and dying father. This leaves Benson with Mike's mother, a woman he's never met. They live together now in a small Houston apartment, awaiting Mike's return. Both men are faced with unfamiliar situations to mull over the emotional territory of their lives. Memorial focuses on issues of identity and race, queerness and familial loyalty, falling in love and breaking up and overcoming large and small traumas. When Brian Washington and I talked, it was before we knew the results of the presidential election, which is something we touched on. We began with Brian Washington sharing the impetus for the novel. It is, at its heart, a love story or a romance between two young men living in Houston, and one of the young men's mothers is in town to help them sort of move along one way or another. But in a lot of ways, it's a story about trying to be okay as a person individually and also trying to be okay as a person among people collectively. And as far as inspiration is concerned, it began as a short story, like quite a short story. And I was in the middle of writing something else that wasn't really going anywhere. But I kept turning back to that original short story because of the thematic concerns, because of the characters. And ultimately, I wanted to see where that narrative would end up, because I think that one thing that you know, proved pretty crucial is that when I thought of characters, like I was invested in their lives and I was invested in their trajectories, but I wasn't quite sure where that ultimately led. So that uncertainty was enough to finish the book in a lot of ways. Right. And so your characters are Mike and Benson, and they're the two young men that are in a relationship. And Mike is Japanese American and Benson is African American and Benson has HIV. And they are have been together for four years, but you get the sense through your writing that a lot of times they fight and then they have sex to make up and they don't communicate exactly their true desires with each other, but it works for them in some way, although they seem to be at a turning point. And when the book opens, Mike's mother, Mitsuko, comes from Japan and he leaves to go back to Japan because his father, Eiju, is dying. So you have this situation where you have this young black man living with an older Japanese mother and you have sort of the clash of not just cultures but their ages right away and so you start exploring maybe their common humanity and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about about writing that. Yeah I think that what was really important to me in that regard is that I didn't want to write a text that capitalize solely on the marginalization of marginalized characters or characters from marginalized communities or to solely capitalize on the trauma or the hardship that characters may have undergone, whether that was infrastructural trauma and hardship or whether that was personal trauma and hardship, because that in a lot of ways wasn't what I wanted to read. I just wasn't interested in reading that. Um, And I certainly wasn't interested in writing it. So really being keen on putting each character in a position where they have the capacity for growth and the capacity for affection for the folks around them and to write characters that were responding to one another and sort of bouncing off of one another and to some extent uh, trying to gel with one another from a place of love as opposed to animosity or as opposed to disdain. And while that sort of gelling 
could look wildly different from character to character, whether it's Ben and Mitsuko, whether it's Mike and Ben, whether it's Mike and Eiju, whether it's any of the characters in relation to one another. I still wanted them to have the benefit of the doubt when it came to that capacity for acceptance or that capacity for providing comfort. And I suppose in some ways that is the intended through line from character to character, irrespective of their ethnicity, irrespective of their sort of geographic point or their age or their financial station in life, like this urge or this seeking to try to connect, even if they don't necessarily have the language for it at any given point in time, whether that's figurative language or literal language in the novel in a lot of ways, is each character trying to navigate that space on their own terms. Because it was doubly important to me for them to not only navigate that space and have the ability to navigate that space, but for them to do it on their own terms and in conversation with one another. Yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me was that these characters could have had a lot of trauma. I mean, they did have something that maybe as an outsider you could say was trauma, whether both characters had alcoholic fathers or had families that split up or had tested positive for HIV or were on the edge of their relationships. They could have been, it could have been very melodramatic. They could have been very impacted by their trauma in a way that was, I don't know, very accentuated. But I felt like they went through their lives accepting their trauma. And it's not that they didn't face it or work it out in some way, but it was just like a really even tone in their lives. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think that, you know, that tracks with like what I was intending, or at least what I was trying to do in that while a character may be paused, right, or they may be navigating what they believe could be the end of a relationship or certainly at least a crux point in a relationship, or they could be in mourning or they could be in the space after mourning if that exists, or they could be in that sort of pre-mourning space, which itself is a variation of mourning. But simultaneously, they still go out to eat and they still laugh and they still cry at things that are outside of that particular predicament. And they still ideally fall in love and they still fall out of love. And they're still constantly trying to figure out where they fit within, you know, their particular context or the context surrounding them. So trying to have a narrative in which many different things can be true simultaneously or many different things can be happening simultaneously was important to me. And I think that part of the structural trick of it was trying to have that balancing act, so to speak, and present it in a way that it didn't seem or feel akin to a balancing act to a reader so much as just like a simulacrum of life as it's actually lived. And that, you know, you're constantly dealing with many different things simultaneously. There was something that Mitsuko said to... Benson, they were having a discussion and I think they wanted to know maybe more about each other. And, and I think Benson might've asked Mitsuko more about her son, Mike. And she said to him that a story is an heirloom. And she was talking about how personal they are in terms of sharing. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that line and the sentiment behind it. Yeah. For that particular juncture in their relationship, they're still trying to figure one another out, 
so to speak, or at least Benson is still trying to figure out Mitsuko. Um, an interesting thing about their relationship, in my opinion, sort of the way I just haven't gotten to talk about it, is that while they certainly have, you know, their more challenging moments, and while they certainly aren't hitting at the same frequency all the time, she, Mitsuko, is, you know, the one character in the book in a lot of ways who is constantly seeking to comfort those around her and is constantly trying and working to bring everyone back to a sort of an emotional foundation in that, you know, the first thing that she does when she lands in a city in another country across the world that she lived in for a time, but she had like a really rough go of it to see her son who tells her that he's leaving immediately to go see his estranged father and oh, also you're staying with, you know, my maybe partner is, you know, she cooks him a meal the next morning before anything starts. And I think that that in a lot of ways is intended to be really emblematic of her character and that, you know, whilst she is able to tell someone what they need to hear, even if they don't, know they need to hear it or not she's constantly putting them in a position to where they can hear it and where they can be comfortable and where they can know know that they are you know cared for in the midst of it but i do think that while all of that is true she still draws boundaries as far as what she is willing to give characters what she's willing to give folks around her and that she's pretty consistent with those boundaries, one of them being the stories that she tells from her life and this idea that, you know, a story is a personal thing, right? Like, it's a, it's a part of you, irrespective of your proximity to the story or the central occurrence in the story. Like, you're still the main character of your particular narrative, right? So for Ben to ask her for that without offering something in return right, is a bit invasive to her, right? And she goes without giving one story or another beyond simple practical details for the duration of the novel. And there are only two moments, really, where she does offer those stories, right? One being when Mike finally does make it back and she gives Ben the story about, you know, tying his shoelaces. And that has, like, a practical function to get Ben to do something. And then for a second time, when they're eating, Ben, Mike, and Mitsuko in that Tex-Mex restaurant at the end of the book. And she tells them the story of how her and Eiji met. But I think that a pretty crucial difference as far as that second and final story that she gives them is that it's the one moment in the text, as far as present time is concerned, where she's being comforted and she's being serviced, right? Like she's not cooking for anyone, right? Like she's sitting down, like she's having a drink, like she's getting this meal. And because she's not providing that sort of emotional labor and that physical labor, she's in a position where she says, okay, you know, now I can share something, right? Like I've received something from y'all or from outside of myself and now I can tell you the story. Uh, but even that has a practical function in a lot of ways to get Mike and Ben to come up with a decision one way or another, although whether they actually do is another question entirely. Well, that's sort of interesting and maybe it's meta, but, and if I'm reflecting back what you said in, in a wrong way, let me know, but you, you were sort of saying that for Mitsuko to 
to say some of these things, she's kind of coming up with the right thing to say at the right moment that isn't always easy. And you're writing that. So I'm curious about, you know, writing this stuff and, and how you, if that flowed for you, or if you, you know, a lot of influences brought you to each line that you wrote. And I'm also wondering about something else you said, which was about, you know, maybe a little bit about the transactional nature of, of sharing stories and you are sharing a novel and what is that like for you as a writer? So there's a lot in those two questions. If, if it's too much, let me know. No, I think it's lovely questions. I think they're reasonable. I think for the former, as far as like process is concerned, it's a matter of overwriting for me. I mean, if, you know, you were to compare the draft as it ended up and the draft that, you know, I began with his book went through, went through a lot of drafts. Like it, it just went through a lot of drafts it Went through about like a 11 on, on and off drafts or so. Right. And the writing process for it was that, you know, I wrote if the conceit is that the book is in three parts, I wrote the first part, um, immediately began the second part, then edited the second in tandem with the first and vice versa. Then I immediately began the third part. And after, you know, writing the last word of the third part began, with the first and then moved to the second and then back to the third. And that sort of revolution constituted one draft. The book went through seven of those, just me by myself. Uh, it went through another two with my agent and I, and then it went to um, another two and a half-ish with my editor and I. And it was important to me to have, you know, that seventh draft going into that eighth draft and in tandem that ninth draft going to that tenth draft before my editor saw it in a place where I was very comfortable with the characters and the narrative and the way in which the arc rolled out because I did not see a lot of comps for this particular book. So I wanted to be sure that it was as close to the iteration that I would have liked to see in the world as possible before showing it to my publisher. Like I wanted it to, I did not want a lot of the inner workings of it to change. Um, and while, you know, my editor is a genius, right. And there, there are crucial changes that we made for the duration of the editing process, much of the actual structure or the outer layer of the narrative, uh, was intact from like the very first, um, iterations of the draft, but just a lot of overwriting, right? Like if I have a 300 word scene, um, it was probably a thousand word scene originally. If there's like a 1500 word scene, there's probably, you know, 4,000 words originally. And moving from you know the sort of short story form to the novel form wasn't the most terrible experience structurally solely because i'm someone who really taps out after that 2500 word pocket so regardless of whether i'm working with you know a 6000 word story or a 60000 word novel um, most of my scenes are going to be pretty excerpty and pretty bitty and pretty, you know, 1500 to 300 words, because that's just how I conceive of scene and how I think in a lot of ways. So in that regard, it wasn't terribly different from other things that I've gotten to write. But as far as like putting reins on it, coming up with you know, sort of tangible narrative that could sustain the length of a novel, it came back to that question of questions, right? Like, I feel like with short stories, at least for me, uh, there's a question that I might have on hand, or there's a thematic concern or structural concern. And the length of the story 
is enough to see me through to the other side of it without necessarily having come up with an answer, but at least being satisfied with where that conversation is led or where that thought is led. So for Memorial, I needed a series of structural concerns and a series of thematic concerns that could withstand the duration of, you know, the three years or so that it took to write the novel, which, you know, there aren't that many questions and concerns <laughs> that I think I've had or that I will have that could withstand, you know, three years worth of sort of poking and prodding. But for, you know, the novel, I ended up having a few. And that is, uh, that's just crucial for me, at least when it comes to sustaining myself for like a long project, because I wanted to see how it would end. And there were days when I didn't, absolutely did not want to write. And there were days where I absolutely didn't want to like the act of ritual of writing, like the sitting down and like doing of it. But there really wasn't a day in the midst of writing it where like I didn't care about where the story would end up. And then once I did know where it would end up, the question shifted from, okay, like what does the story look like to how can I mold this current arc into the clearest iteration of it that I can. So really finding questions and finding concerns that sustain the length of completing the project were crucial as far as working in the form and trying to make it something sustainable that can live a life uh, in itself. And what about that, the second part about the transactional nature maybe of stories and, and offering the story to the world? There is a transaction, but I don't know that it's as clean of one as like picking up like a cheeseburger or like, you know, picking up some gum from the corner store, you know, and that memorial was a narrative that I wanted to read and I did not see it. So I wrote it. Um, it is probably an essential detail that the book was not written on contract, right? So it was, there was no, there was no contract in place for Memorial, the novel. So while I certainly had the encouragement of my editor and I certainly had, you know, the encouragement of the team that I work with over at Riverhead, if the book hadn't surfaced or metabolized, like there would have been, you know, no harm, no foul, right? Because no money would have been lost whatsoever and nothing was promised. So much of finishing it was me wanting just to see what it would look like and wanting to tell a story that I thought that I would enjoy, that I thought my friends would enjoy, that would satisfy those structural and thematic and character concerns that I had in the midst of it, right? But I'm still someone who pretty firmly believes that once a book is out in the world and it's with a reader, it doesn't belong to me anymore, right? And while ideally, you know, you're fortunate to have readers who survive what you're doing and they see what you're trying to do and they're able to approach it with their respective personal canons and their respective literary canons and y'all can somewhere meet up in the middle. If they don't, or if they take something entirely different from the narrative than what I intended, then that's not really my business. Right? Because the book belongs to them now, right? Like it belongs to you, or rather the iteration of it that belongs to me is very different and very singular 
from the iteration that belongs to any given reader on an individual basis. But I think that one of the lovely things about this sort of quarantine press tour and seeing the book out in the world is finding the different things that folks have found in the text that I may not have intended or that I didn't intend or that I did not exacerbate in my mind or structurally or thematically on the page, but proved to be of the utmost important to them as readers because they're approaching it with their lives in mind and their experiences in mind. And they were able to find, you know, something to connect with in a character or a scenario. And that's like a really special thing, I think, um, regardless of where it comes from or what, you know, form it ends up taking, because that means that, you know, someone took this narrative that, you know, you made up essentially and they saw themselves in it. Right. And there are authors who've done that for me, and it's meant a good deal to me. So to hear from folks that you know there's something that they're seeing in Memorial, or there's something that they can identify with, or something that you know I may not have intended, but that proved to be important to them, or useful to them, or thoughtful to them, is really lovely. And I think it's on the other side of that. It's like parallel to that sort of transaction, and that you know it's just like it's just like a really nice thing that you can never really plan on or account for. It reminds me a little bit of um, m- m- probably my favorite piece of dialogue in the book was Benson worked at sort of an after school care or, or daycare sort of place, but older kids. And he had a coworker named Jimena who was getting married and was a good force in Benson's life. They were good friends and she was um, just more optimistic and she was getting married And I think Benson was questioning her about that. Um, She had had a bad first marriage and she seemed very happy, but he was like, you know, kind of questioning what she was doing again. And, And she said to him, nobody ever knows if it'll work. That's why you do this shit to find out. And I feel like that can be applicable to just about everything, like writing, relationships. Um, But it was one of my favorite moments in the book. I mean, I was like, it's just a character that like I hold you. But it, I mean, I think that that was, to put it lightly, <laughs> the, the impetus and the driving force for much of this book, finishing it, and also the sort of front end of, uh, you know, the publishing process. And it has been, you know, it has gone places and it is, you know, as far as like exposure and as far as, you know, folks that I've seen it in the hands of that I like never would have imagined it would have even as soon as you know april i was still very much of the opinion and you know there's something i would talk to my editor about all the time that like eight of my friends would read it and you know six of them would read it on their phones and that would be you know a wrap as far as like memorial was concerned but i was very okay with that because i've gotten to spend three years thinking through things that mattered to me, right? Like questions that had been on my mind working with characters that I thought a good deal of. And that was like such a privilege that the question of like a back end wasn't even on, you know, the the outer limit of the outer limit of my concerns uh, while I was writing Memorial, right? Like the 
you know, when I was like drafting in Austin or Osaka or like in any number of like coffee shops in Houston, I wasn't really thinking about, okay, like this is where, you know, the text will go. Like the part of it that I cared about was like, okay, like how, what does it look like at the end? And then how do I make it better? Those were my central concerns because um, you just don't know like at the end of uh, the end of the day like when you finish a project like you just don't know so you know there has to be something in it for you or you have to re- have to have a reason to finish the thing that you know that belongs to you and that you hold dear and I was just really fortunate to have a project where that was the case because that's not true of, you know of every project and you know it's something that you're very lucky if you're able to have Well, you mentioned a few times that, you know, you had these questions that you were working out over the the life of the project. And I'm sure many of them were thematic and some of them could have been about writing. I'm not sure. But I'm wondering if you did start off as an individual in the world in one place. And just because of writing this, you ended up somewhere else. And if if so, would you share that? Yes, is the answer to that. Um, I think that a number of things changed from like the beginning of writing it to, you know, the sort of end of it. And I think that they're all under the umbrella of this motif of many different things being true simultaneously. Great. That, and also a lack of I suppose import or lack of reliance on an answer to something or like a clean conclusion to something and more emphasis and more import on the actual seeking out of the answer, seeking out of the conclusion, the sort of significance of that arc, right? And spending time in that arc and really exploring that arc, regardless of what, form it takes for any particular question. I think that that was certainly a shift that occurred for me over the course of writing it. And that's, you know, that's three years. I mean, I, and I frankly know very few people that haven't changed significantly in the past, what, like six months, <laughs> this past six months of this year alone. So having gotten to spend time thinking about just like the question of like an arc and the question of like not ending up with an answer, a clear cut answer, or perhaps that answer is, you know, eight or nine different things and they're all true and having to negotiate that with yourself and being okay with whatever that looks like is definitely one of the central concerns for every character in the text. And it was a central concern for me at the beginning of the text. And it's one that's held true. You know, it's something that I'm going to be thinking about for, for a very long time. Yet we want that certainty with our presidential election. <laughs> it would be nice to know. <laughs> yeah, it would be, it would be nice to know. But, you know, in a lot of ways, like the past, you know, six, seven months have been a, a and that's, yeah, it's like not something you can anticipate when you write a book, but like they've just been a moment of flux and just continuous flux and flux without end in sight in which, many different things are happening simultaneously and many different things are true simultaneously. And many of us have had to reconfigure and rebalance and figure out like, okay, 
I've been told that I want these six or seven things and I've been told that these six or seven things are good or that I should strive for them. But now I'm in a very different context from the one in which I sort of received those directives in that direction. And I don't think that's terribly divorced from what Ben and Mike are sort of going through, right? Like, who are you when your context shifts irrevocably or when the sort of parameters that are defining who you're meant to be have shifted or dissolved one way or another? You know, like if you're no longer living in the city that you've spent, you know, a decade making a career and you have to move back home in order to ride out like a certain period of time or you're separated from loved ones for a certain period of time. You don't have that context or the framework of that context and who are you and what happens if that iteration of who you think you are, who you want to be is very different from the one in which you were originally. That was also a question um, that was deeply important to me. What is your relationship to Osaka and Japan? A really lovely one and a really generous one. I mean, I went for first time about five years ago or so, and it was just like to visit a friend. And the experience was just really generous and really warm in such a way that like I've gotten the chance to go back once or twice a year since then. And I've just been really fortunate to, to meet folks who are friends or strangers who just become friends or even just strangers who are just deeply warm and just deeply kind. And I certainly didn't start traveling there. And I certainly didn't spend time there with, you know, even it being in the back of my head that I would write about it someday or that I would put it in narrative because like I was just... I just felt really fortunate to be privy to that experience. But at some point, it became clear that there was a warmth and a generosity that I was, you know, being privileged to have and being really privy to that I had only felt in Houston. And those two cities are, Osaka and Houston are very different from one another, to say the least. But to find them united in that warmth and that generosity in my experiences has you know that's like it's really interesting that that raises a question for me of like okay like they're different but how are they the same right and i think that as someone who is really taken by the notion of writing about communities that come together even if they seem at first glance disparate or this idea of like found families and the different ways that one can create a family or what constitutes a family or like what home can look like or whether a home is like a geographic point, whether it's like a history that a group of people has in a particular place or if it's just a feeling or and if that feeling can change and what happens if that, you know, feeling surfaces in an unlikely place. Um, but I have only had lovely experiences in Osaka and trying to put that warmth on the page for that particular city and also for Houston was something that I knew from the outset of beginning the project that I would want to try and do. Um, and largely because I didn't know what it would look like and I hadn't seen it um, done in English before. So it was, you know, that was uh, pretty, pretty important for me. 
I'm wondering if you can share in a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer. Yeah, so this is a little bit from Daniel Zamparelli. He has a story collection called Everything is Awful and You're a Terrible Person. The book was deeply, deeply important to me while I was writing Memorial and also while I was just being a person in the world. Uh, We sat on the couch. He looked at me and began to cry. My body jumped toward him instinctively, and I pulled his head into my lap. I stroked his hair and muffled my own tears to ask him what was wrong. I don't know. I just thought my family would be here, El said. But they said they couldn't make it, and you said that was fine. I thought it would be fine. I get weird around my birthday. I didn't respond. I felt his head weigh heavily in my lap. I thought about Rogue from X-Men. The way she couldn't touch skin to skin without taking in all of the other person's energy. We fell asleep with the rain hitting the window. When I woke up, he had moved to the bed. I switched over to the bed, and we slept until the afternoon. When I woke up for the second time, he was making breakfast and singing and giggling to himself. How you feeling today? Better than last night? Yeah. Why? You were so upset last night. He laughed. No, I wasn't. Would you like to share more about why you chose that? Yeah, so I it was a collection that I read a few years ago. Um, Zamparelli released it in 2017, and it was entirely unlike anything that I had read before in that Daniel took queer lives as, you know, they sort of like lived and as they're actually lived and put it on the page in a way that wasn't reductive or in a way that wasn't destructive or in a way that wasn't talking down to a reader, like holding their hand. And there was a certain mundanity and domesticity that like, I had not seen in narratives featuring queer folks that didn't, you know, solely capitalize like on the whatever trauma may or may not have been surrounding, you know, their queerness or their moving through the world. And that, it just really, it just really struck me because you don't see that very often and you certainly don't see it done just extremely well, just like deeply, deeply well. So that particular story, but also the collection had a pretty big, big impact on me. Can you share a passage that you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? So this bit is actually going to be from Memorial. When I wake up, it's way past midnight. The living room's silent. I figure Meats goes sound asleep and Mike's tapping on his phone and I can't tell if he sees me or what. So I ask him to pass me a pillow. I tell him I'll sleep on the floor. Now you're just being fucking ridiculous, says Mike, pulling me onto his stomach. We lie there for a moment, just breathing on each other. So, I say, you went to Osaka. Yeah, says Mike. Now I'm back. And your father, I say, 
and I regret at the moment the words leave my mouth, but all Mike does is scratch the bridge of his nose. I slip my fingers in his hair. Mike's shoulders relax. I've been seeing someone, I say. I don't know what I expect to happen, but I brace myself. Mike blinks once, and then once again. Seeing, seeing? Or are you two just fucking? I don't know, I say. Okay, says Mike. And his body relaxes even further. In that case, he says, I met someone too. He looks me in the eyes when he says it. Despite everything, I don't feel anything. Do you want to share more about why you chose that passage? Yeah. So this was the moment in which Ben and Mike reunite. So this be great. Like Mike's come back from Osaka and Ben is still there with Mitsuko, Mike's mother. And it's one of the first conversations that they have after Mike's back in Houston. And it was very difficult to write this particular conversation. I think, you know, the book took three years to write through 11 drafts. Um, This is not a conversation that I was comfortable with until the ninth draft. And it changed uh, during the 10th as well. It didn't change for the 11th draft, partly because of the weight that I wanted and in a lot of ways needed each character's words to have because it's still quite sparse, the dialogue that they're having. But it's still the most that we see them talk on the page at the same time in the same place for the entirety of the book. There's just not a longer conversation that they have. So that time that we spend with the two of them in which they're decompressing and in which they're being very honest with one another and in which the conversation is flowing in a way that it wouldn't have flowed prior to their going on their respective journeys, whether metaphorical or physical, prior to that was difficult to put on the page. You know, it was difficult to have and to figure out who was breathing when, like who shifted their motion when, like who adjusted themselves in bed and when and what action or what reaction that looked like emotionally for one character or one another. Not only what it looked like, but what it was for one character or one another, what happened when those two things were different. So it was a pretty tricky passage to make work on the page, and it took some time for me to feel comfortable with how to edit it up. Where do you write? Mm, I, this past six months, it's been at home. <laughs> like I write at home. Um, but in non-pandemic uh, times, I usually write in boba shops or like coffee shops. Um, I think that my favorite places to write are places in which I don't have to be engaged with the background, but in which the background is dynamic. So coffee shops are really lovely. But also um, airport terminals are, are really lovely. Um, that's something that probably won't get to experience for some time. But yeah, I think fondly of them as spaces I get to try and make a story work. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Mm, I have a dog, so I walk my dog. Um, I 
cook a good deal, although I don't think the cooking is terribly divorced from the, the processes that you're negotiating when you're writing. I like crafts, like I do origami. Um, and just walking oftentimes is like a nice reprieve from writing, like just like physically doing something and feeling without necessarily thinking, right? Or like parsing through something. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Friends. Yeah, I have three or four friends that I write toward. And in a lot of ways, you could argue that beyond myself, like they're who I have in mind when I'm trying to put a narrative on the page because they have really acute senses of story, whether that's, you know, literary fiction, whether that's just narrative from out in the world or something in between. And also they're quite funny. So I know if they are even, you know, remotely interested in, in, you know, something that I'm doing, it might be worth uh, following through. How have you dealt with rejection? Mm, You move on. Um, I think that I saw Bong Joon-ho being asked that same question, like, a few years ago on YouTube. And, like, his response was, like, it's my job, which I thought was just so great and so straightforward and you know it is it isn't part of the job right like it's not an occupational hazard it's not a bad thing like it's part of the job so you know you, you deal with it and you move on and what is your favorite word rosemary all right well thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it oh yeah thank you so much for having me i really appreciate you taking the time in the midst of everything you know You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Brian Washington, author of the novel Memorial. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Garth Greenwell about his novel What Belongs to You, a story about two gay men in Bulgaria who are negotiating their relationship, which begins as purely sexual and moves toward something more complicated and fraught. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 280 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Susan Minot, Jonathan Lethem, and Charles Baxter. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.